Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. I'm Andrew Harris, as always, with my co-host and partner in crime. Or you know, uh, really, Part, partner in crime. This is Andrew I, Decker. Hi, hi. I thought you were going to introduce Winston. You know, we don't <laughs> we don't write out these intros, and I'm just it's like, obvious. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I was going to say not partner in crime, but partner in criminal defense. defense? Yes, not really partners. I, we're just no, we're not partners. The whole thing. We're, yeah, so you're Andrew and I'm Andrew, and the dog in the room is Winston. Yeah, and um, we have a guest. Let's we just do. let's just go ahead and move to that. Thankfully, <laughs> I know uh, our listeners are probably like, "Oh, thank thank the Lord, we yeah. have a guest today." Um, and why don't you introduce our guest? All right, so our guest is uh, works for the Texas Indigent Defense. Is it Commission or Committee? Commission. Commission. All right, yeah. Jeff Burkhart. Um, he works Fantastic. for him, and and he's going to tell us a little bit about that. Uh, and I'm excited to have him on. I'm actually, I actually work with a group, um, our, one of our former guests, uh, Jeff Shearer, right. uh, yeah. and I both do some stuff through them. Uh, I actually mentor him through a future incident defense lawyers group right. that's kind of run through TIDC and our former guest, um, Jessica Cantor is also a mentor with that group. Um, so, and, and for a lot of our defenders too, if you're on any kind of defense lawyers listserv, you get some regular emails or, or updates or inquiries from TIDC. Right. Uh, and so this may sound somewhat familiar, but you know what? Like I've received those emails. I couldn't really tell you what. Well, you I know, couldn't tell you if it was a committee or a commission. commission without right. Double checking. So <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to have Jeff here to, to kind of give us, um, uh, an explainer on TIDC, a primer. A primer, and, yes, and uh, and you know, learn more about it. So, so Jeff, let, welcome. Jeff, yeah, let's start with the simple. Why don't you introduce yourself and tell us how you got into the law? Let's start there. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, thanks for having me today. And and by the way, Andrew, thanks for saying Jeff Burkhardt. I spell it with a G, and I I've, I've had people say G off and Gof and uh, all kinds of other pronunciations. So you all nailed it. Thanks for saying Jeff. You're welcome. <laughs> the first, only thing first I've thing, done right. First, uh, first thing I got right today. <laughs> if you, you did mention earlier you listened to the podcast, and I think you probably heard me uh, mispronounce a, a handful of of our guest names. So I'm I'm happy we got this one right. Oh, you you know you, you all nailed it. No, that was good. Uh, so yeah, my name is Jeff Burkhart, and uh, gosh, where to start? I mean, I you know I I grew up in Kentucky. Um, and I, I bring that up in part. I mean, you're asking how did you know how did I come into this this kind of line of work? So I grew up in Kentucky. I grew up Catholic, and 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 growing up Catholic in Kentucky, there the churches we went to, there was a big focus on service to the poor. Uh, so I grew up kind of going to like you know the soup kitchens and that kind of stuff. I was in Boy Scouts, and we did a lot of service projects. Um, and, and I would love to sit here and tell you that that's been a, a, a running theme throughout my life. And it hasn't really. I mean, it really was a theme when I was a kid. <laughs> I kind of sucked at it when I was probably in my teens and 20s. But um, it, it really, I think, as an adult is what drove me toward the law. I mean, I, at first I, I went into sociology. I was in a sociology, sociology graduate program. I was going to get a Ph.D. And um, I think the thought of writing a book that only three people would read was too depressing. And I, I just couldn't see myself just being a sociology professor. So I dropped out for a few years. I just kind of bummed around. Uh, I played in a bunch of bands and uh, I worked at Borders when that was a thing. And then eventually went to <laughs> that, law That's school. when you actually had to go somewhere to buy a book, right? In records? That's right. right. <laughs> okay. I, 
I worked in the music section selling CDs uh, for most of it and then worked selling books for a little bit. But yeah, that was, those were you know, those are the days. Um, and then really went to law school because I, I mean, a lot of it was just my background in sociology. I mean, I was concerned about the same stuff about you know, poverty and, and you know, human rights and constitutional rights as I was concerned about when I was in sociology. But I wanted to do something applied. I wanted to actually do something that would affect other people's lives in some way. So that, that's what brought me to law school. All right. All right. And, and if that's kind of where you're looking, that is often going to end up in the criminal defense world. Yeah. Um, yeah. Much right. more than, than contracts or insurance defense. Yeah. Right. So it makes sense. It makes sense. And, and, and Andrew and I both come from similar backgrounds. We grew up in the church. We grew up doing lots of stuff with, you know, civic minded organizations, uh, community and church community events that were very focused on how do we serve the least and the lost? And so we, we can, we can see that path in our own lives. So thanks for that. Yeah. Um, so you work for, uh, well, what, what is your position at, uh, TIDC? So I'm the executive director. Ooh, fancy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> I went straight to the source. I, I, I direct yeah, uh, executively. <laughs> so, so, so Jeff, I'm going to be honest. Uh, when I first reached out, you know, to, to, to my contact and I got handed off. I was like, Oh, I got handed off to someone. I didn't know I got handed off to oh, the top dog. So, <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll apologize for that. Um, so what is, so what is the Texas indigent defense commission's main purpose? Why, why do you exist? So TIDC, Texas indigent defense commission, we, we don't do direct representation. We basically do three things. We, we fund indigent defense throughout the state. We oversee indigent defense throughout the state, and then we work to improve indigent defense throughout the state. Um, so the funding comes in a bunch of different forms. I mean, we, we fund uh, six innocence projects across the state. That that's kind of a very small sliver of what we do. Uh, most of the funding kind of goes out the door in two ways. One is um, we have formula grants. And basically, it's just a formula that determines how much every county gets. And so the, that funding goes to all 254 counties. And reimburse is really just kind of a sliver of every county's indigent defense budget. We reimburse about 12% on average of every county's indigent defense budget. Um, but we also have something that we call improvement grants. So those improvement grants we use for all kinds of things. I mean, basically just to improve indigent defense. That could be building managed assigned council systems, public defender offices. You know, you mentioned the, the FIDL program, the Future Indigent Defense Leaders Program. Um, you know, we use that to add investigators, PDEA attorneys, social workers, paralegals, um, whatever capacity is really kind of needed to improve indigent defense. So that's kind of the funding part. Really, the, the oversight, we collect data from all 254 counties. So if you all haven't been to the website, we have really pretty excellent data. Um, website's a little outdated looking, and we're, we're in a two-year process of kind of overhauling that. But we collect data from all 254 counties. You can see what the appointment rate is in every county. You can see per capita expenditures. You can see use of investigators, all kinds of stuff there. Um, Caseloads for attorneys and all that. But in addition to that for oversight, we, you know, we collect all this data, but we also have a team of policy monitors and a team of uh, fiscal monitors who actually go out boots on the ground. They do court observation. They do record review, they do interviews, and they write up reports and just see are, are these counties meeting the Fair Defense Act. And then the, the last bit, you know, with improvement, this is pretty broad. I mean, this could be planning new public defender offices. 
we do a lot of publications. We do a lot of presentations. We do a lot of training, technical assistance, all that kind of stuff. So that, that's kind of what we do in a nutshell. Yeah, it's funding, oversight, and improvement. Yeah, j- just to give you uh, an idea, I-, I take appointed cases out of two counties. And in the last year, well, maybe been really two years, COVID kind of doesn't count. Um, I've met with the group that comes out to interview and investigate and watch the local in both those counties. So I've, I've seen that, that piece in action personally. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, it's an interesting kind of deal to kind of say, Hey, what are we really doing? Is it really what needs to be done? Um, it, it's, you know, I, I found it kind of fun to be just to even be heard and say, yeah, this works. And I think we're missing a little bit right here. So yeah, don't, yeah. don't know, know if it makes any difference, but at least right. I got to say it. <laughs> Oh, it does. I mean, and those, I should say, I mean, especially like we, we started just in the past couple of years, we, you know, that monitoring, historically, we were just looking at access to counsel, you know, are you getting an attorney? So we were looking at things like, you know, at administration, are they actually asking you if you want a lawyer? Did they help you fill out the form? Did they timely transmit that form to, to a judge to, to rule on the form, that kind of thing? Um, the past couple of years, we started really looking at, you know, I mean, once you kind of answer that access question, you know, yes, you get an attorney. Um, we're really concerned about quality then. So we, we started just in the past few years kind of doing this quality metrics kind of pilot. And man, I mean, what you're talking about, Andrew, I mean, we, we've started doing a survey of attorneys and just getting their feedback on what's going well, what's going poorly. It's fascinating. I mean, reading these surveys is just, uh, it, man, it, it uncovers so much. And we have several board members. I mean, Judge Keller is our, our, our chairperson. Um, I can tell you, Judge Keller reads those. The Chief Justice reads those surveys. I mean, uh, we have several board members and several staff members who just like, we, we eat this stuff up because you learn so much. Yeah. So what, like, what's been the biggest eye-opener, I think, from reading those responses, uh, from, in your opinion? Oh, gosh. You know, there, I think one of the things there, some of it's been about the economic incentives and disincentives for attorneys. Um, right. We, we, we sometimes dance around this. And I think you all know, I mean, we have a county-based system, you know, and attorney fee schedules vary county by county. Sometimes they vary depending on whether it's, uh, you know, it could be from court to court sometimes even, even though it's supposed to be county-based. Um, but the way that it's actually, the practice is implemented can vary from court to court. Um, we've set up, I think, in, in a lot of places, kind of scurry economic incentives, you know, I mean, you look at, I'm not trying to pick on Bear County because they're, they're not like unique in this sense, but you know, Bear County pays 180 bucks a pop for a misdemeanor case. You know, and if you look at, it doesn't matter what standards you look at. If you look at ABA defense function standards, if you look at Texas state bar guidelines, I mean, we, you know, and you all know this, I mean, we're supposed to do basic things as an attorney. You investigate the facts, you research the law, you file motions, it, it, pertinent motions. You visit with your client. You show up in court. All, all that kind of stuff. How do you how do you do that for 180 bucks on a case? You know how 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 do you possibly do that? And I and I think one of the things that's um, so these flat fees I think have really kind of popped up, kind of bubbled up in a lot of these counties that have flat fees. And um, one of the comments that gosh I, I saw something recently that was that we don't I think a lot of people think this but we don't often hear attorneys say this. There was an attorney who essentially wrote, I can't possibly do the basic things that I'm supposed to do in a case for that amount of money. 
And so I don't, you know, essentially I, you know, I, I kind of do triage type representation. Um, and, and that was eye-opening that I think a lot of people unfortunately think that, um, but that was eye-opening that somebody wrote that down. <laughs> you know, that's like, I handle my retained cases differently from my, my indigent cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what we got to fix. I mean, that's a huge challenge. I, and I don't, I don't put the blame necessarily on the attorneys. I think we've it just in a lot of parts of Texas for years, we've set up lousy systems that set up really bad incentives for attorneys. Um, and, and, and we got to fix it. All right. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to skip down our, our outline just a little bit, because I think it brings me to, to a question that I have later in, in most jurisdictions, what I've heard is 80% of felonies or 75 to 80% of felonies have appointed counsel. Is that reasonable? Yeah. Yeah. I, it's a good question, right? I mean, if you look at that, I mean, the last time we had a study on this nationally by the Bureau of Justice Statistics, this was probably 15 years ago. So it's a little bit outdated at this point. But the last time we had a study on this, the average appointment rate nationally was about 80%. So if you look at Texas felonies, yeah, felony the appointment rate in Texas, the average is about 80%. You know, misdemeanors were actually a little under 50, a little under um or felonies 80%, misdemeanors were a little under 50%. Um, but the one quick side note, I mean, and I, I think an important one, we still have counties in Texas, more than a handful, that have a 0% appointment rate for misdemeanors. And these are not counties that just have like five, 10 misdemeanors. I mean, counties that have dozens or hundreds or thousands, some of them don't appoint counsel in misdemeanor cases. We've got, in fact, 50 Texas counties where the misdemeanor appointment rate is below 10%. My, I, I worry less though, ultimately about the percentage and about more about like, you know, when you look at Gideon versus Wainwright, you know, 1963, you look at it's kind of the progeny. If you look at Argier Singer versus Hamlin, you look at N. Ray Gold, you look at all the, the, you know, these US Supreme Court cases, they never say or rarely say the word indigent. Um, what they say, what the question isn't about whether you're indigent, the question's about whether or not you can afford counsel, right? So I don't know about y'all, like, I, you know, I'm a government worker, I got a salary, I'm not indigent. And if I were arrested in a misdemeanor case, I could afford counsel, right? I mean, we, right. you know, it would, it, it would stink, I wouldn't want to pay the money for it, don't want to be in that situation, but I could afford counsel. If I were picked up on a homicide, or, or, or God forbid, like a death penalty case, I could, I'm still not indigent, but I can't, I, I couldn't afford counsel, I, I would need right. appointed counsel. Right, right. Yeah. And, and I think that's a critical distinction a lot of times we miss. And, and, and I, I think the term indigent is a little bit misleading sometimes. The 80% question, I mean, going back to it, I mean, is that the right number? I, I hear different versions of this around the state, I, oftentimes from a, uh, from a judge or a court personnel. And the, the car model changes, but it's always some version of, Oh, this guy came in and he was driving a Maserati and, you know, he got counsel or this, you know, this, this lady came in and she had a Porsche and she got counsel. How can that be? And, and I'm not saying it never happens. I'm, I'm sure there are instances where people are getting counsel uh, where they don't deserve it. I mean, it's a, and it's a delicate, you know, this is tricky, right? Because you err too far in one direction and you give somebody counsel who doesn't deserve it. You are wasting taxpayer dollars. If you err too far in the other direction, you're violating a constitutional right. So it's something we really have to get right. But when I, when I look at, and this is, man, this is something we, I think we really need to study in Texas. 
is if you look at the studies of this in other states, when they really dug into this, and then in what they've done in these studies, essentially, I think one was in Nebraska and one in, I want to say, Iowa. But essentially what they did in these studies was they, you know, they would screen people for, ind for indigence. And instead of just taking their word and, and just accepting the form, they would actually go and do kind of like uh, a, kind of a deep dive into their finance and look at, you know, home ownership, look at their work, look at uh, what other resources they have, they have, all that kind of stuff. And when they've done those studies, generally what, what they've found is that it's, <laughs> it's kind of counterintuitive. It, the, yeah, there were a few people who would say, um, hey, I'm poor, I need an attorney, appoint an attorney to me. But what happened more often was that people were overstating their wealth and trying to sound like they actually had more assets than they did, which is kind bizarre. Kind and of the no one, no one wants to admit they're broke. Yeah, right. I mean, I was thinking, I think it was like a John Steinbeck thing that like, you know, in, in America, that there, we, we don't have any poor people. We just have temporarily embarrassed millionaires, right? I, I think that's kind of the mentality where it's like, you know, I don't want to admit that I'm poor, even if it means that I get an attorney. So I, you know, the 80%, that's tough. It's hard to say. I think we need to study it. And probably there are people getting attorneys, I think probably not in large numbers, but probably people getting attorneys occasionally in some counties who don't deserve it. But I, I can say with certainty that there are people who are not getting attorneys and who are going uncounseled on a regular basis. Yeah. And I've, I've seen that in some of our a little bit more rural counties. Um, Andrew and I kind of sit on the edge of the DFW Metroplex. And so we, we have cases in the Metroplex itself and, in, yeah. you know, a couple of the largest counties in the state. And then you travel within an hour and you are suddenly in very rural. And if you mm -hmm. bond out, the judge says, well, obviously you're not indigent. We'll, right. we'll not appoint you counsel right. at any level. Um, and you go, wow, that, that, that may be completely erroneous, um, right. you know, as to what this person can pay or not pay. Or who, who knows, you know, if that bond, if that bondsman did him a favor or if a family member came forward and, you know, and bonded him out. I mean, who, you know, there's just so many different factors, but yeah, there's those judges that are just like, well, you're on the outside. You can, you can afford that bond and you can afford to hire an attorney. It's kind of an issue. Yeah. And the, the law in Texas says you can't do that. Right. I mean, it, it says you, you, you know, just cause you bond out, it's not, it's a separate analysis. Yeah. That's, that is a big issue. We had uh, uh, Jason Niehaus on uh, as a guest a couple episodes ago. And he's like, you know, d the, being a judge is not a meritocracy. So yeah, just right. It's, it's the law <laughs> to, to follow the, uh, the, you know, the affidavit and look at the parameters of what an, in, you know, what is indigency and, um, in the state of Texas, who deserves uh, an attorney, and then you just have those judges who just have it in their own head, like, nope, this is this is the guideline I'm going by. But Jeff, um, I I do think the idea, because occasionally I'll quote a fee to a to a potential client, and they'll go, well, Mr. Decker, it's going to take me some time to get that money together, and I'll say, I understand, I don't have that kind of money. I, I it would take me a week to get that kind of cash together, right, um, right. and. I probably, between my wife having a very good job and myself having my own practice, probably can scrape together some money that some of the people I'm talking to not, they're talking to family. They're, they're truly hitting everything they can to scrape right. up that fee. Yeah. Um, right. So when you put it in that sense, you know, I, I know I say that on a regular basis. I understand. I wouldn't have that kind of money today. It would take me some time. I'd have to, you know, dig and search and scrape. So 
it so becomes you mentioned, difficult. Yeah, you mentioned a lot of data um, just in this this short time that we've uh, that we've been recording, and I'm wondering is that the reason we, as defense attorneys who accept court appointments, submit that report to TIDC every year? That's where you're getting this data from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, we we collect data in a few different ways, but it, the, really the main three ways we we have something called the indigent defense plan. So basically every county submits an indigent defense plan, sometimes multiple, but basically the plan just tell, it's more of a narrative form, but the plan and all that's available on our website for every county. But basically it's, you know, the plan says, all right, here's what it takes to qualify to be on the list. Here's the attorney fee schedule. Here's what it would take to get kicked off the list, that kind of stuff. Every county also submits an indigent defense expenditure report. uh, And we get that annually. and, And basically that's, you know, just kind of system level data, how much is spent on cases on indigent defense? How many juvenile cases did you have? How many felony cases did you have? All that kind of stuff. And we combine that with data from uh, the Office of Court Administration. And when you kind of mix and match that data, you get some really interesting insights. But the, the last bit that we get, you know, we do, we do get kind of a, attorney caseloads. Um, but the tricky thing with attorney caseloads is that, you know, if I'm a private attorney, for instance, and let's say I spend 30% of my time doing indigent defense, and maybe the other 70% is a mix of, you know, retained criminal work or maybe, you know, personal injury or contracts, wherever it may be. And we see that, you know, oh, this person only has 100 criminal cases a year, right? 100 felonies. That doesn't look too bad. And it turns out that's just a, a third of their work or 10% of their work, you know, <laughs> then, then all of a sudden the caseload starts looking pretty high. Right. And we, we do, that's that kind of touches on another problem that we have that, you know, the, and this is not uniform across the state, but we have attorneys who have some outrageously high caseloads in parts of Texas. And, and that's true of some public defenders. That's true of, of some private attorneys. It's not, yeah. it's not just one or the other. I mean, we, we've had some attorneys um, with over a thousand cases per year. Um, and so that's why we ask, I mean, one of the things that attorneys really are reporting is what percentage of your case time is spent on um, indigent defense. And that, that helps us kind of determine, you know, what, what a caseloads look like across the state. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, and so when you're, when you're compiling all of that data, just to kind of get, I guess, just an overview of the state of indigent defense in the state of Texas, are you, you know, uh, what, I guess, what are you doing with that data? Are you, um, you know, meeting with the, the state house on funding or the Supreme court or the state bar? I mean, you know, what, where do you, where do you go with that? Yeah. Oh gosh. We, we use it pretty much daily. I mean, in, in a bunch of different ways. Um, I mean, first it's all open to the public. So we, we do have members of the public who are kind of looking into it. Some just out of curiosity, some because they have loved ones who are caught up in the criminal justice system. Uh, we have reporters, um, probably not on a daily basis, but definitely a weekly basis, usually multiple times a week, you know, reporters calling up and asking questions. And we tell them what data we have and what data we don't have. Uh, definitely comes into play in the legislature. Um, we get a lot of questions about that. Um, but it also helps us make decisions, right? I mean, like when we get counties asking us to plan a new public defender office, for instance, um, we, we, you know, we, we go, the first place we go really is to our data. Uh, and then we, we come back and talk to, you know, we interview attorneys, we interview judges, court personnel and all that. But the, the data really drives so much of that because we can, 
see what the caseloads look like. We can see what the appointment rates look like. We can see if, you know, if, if for instance, you know, you all were, we, you know, we were talking about um, appointment rates before. We, you know, it's, it's pretty common. We'll go, if we're going into a rural area, what often happens is a rural area will say, look, we, we don't have enough money to handle all these cases anymore. We don't have attorneys living in our county anymore who will take these cases. You know, the nearest attorney is, is 50 miles away, 100 miles away. Yeah. Um, and, and we look at their appointment rates and yeah, lo and behold, I mean, usually the felony rate is lower than average. We'll see 50% or something like that. And a lot of times those misdemeanor appointment rates in those counties, we'll see it's 5%, 10%. And those other 90, 95%, it's not like they're going out and hiring counsel in these areas. It's, they're, they're going on counsel. Right. Yep. So we, so we were using that and, and, you know, I mean, so we can say, well, you're probably not going to get to the state average for appointment rates overnight, but gosh, we want to build toward that, that make sure that, you know, that's a good, it's a big red flag for us that people are probably not getting counsel. And so anyway, so yeah, we use it for planning offices, all, all kinds of stuff. So it's yeah, extremely helpful. Yeah, it sounds like it. And, and you just mentioned there, like, you know, the, somebody calling a county touching base with you when they want to open a public defender's office. And so you do a lot of work, I'm assuming with other public defender's offices, right? We do. Yeah. So we, um, both in Texas and I'd say outside of Texas too. So, you know, I, I was, um, before I came to TIDC, I was a private attorney. Um, I was a public defender. I clerked for a judge. I was, and then I was kind of the, the public defense guy at the American Bar Association for a few years. And, um, yeah, we, we did, you know, kind of an interesting thing a few years ago, I guess about three, four years ago, I was down in the Valley and I was meeting with the chief public defender. We were, we were going out to lunch and you know, I was asking what, what, what are the challenges that you face? What are the opportunities that you have? What's going on with your office? You know, how's hiring going How You know, are there tricky judges that you have to work with? Whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. And they gave me a laundry list of stuff. And the next morning I drove, I think just two, three counties over. And talk to another chief public defender and ask the same sorts of questions. And I got the same sorts of answers. And I said, well, when, when's the last time you all talked? And they said, well, you know, it's probably been three or four years. Oh, man. <laughs> and, and I thought, oh, this is crazy. So we started actually TIDC launched the, uh, the Texas chief public defender group about three or four years ago. I think about three years ago. And that group meets on a monthly basis now. Um, and, and so every chief public defender across the state, and we've got now about 60 counties that have public defender offices, um, meet and we talk about problems. We talk about new ideas. We talk about how to use investigators, social workers, hiring issues. What do you do with interns, uh, management supervision issues. We bring in people nationally, like, you know, next month we're bringing in, um, a, a reporter from New York times and, uh, and uh, a lawyer from the Legal Aid Society in New York to talk about the use of digital forensics, um, you know, analyzing cell phones and, and yeah. uh, iPads and that kind of stuff. So, so anyway, yeah, so we, we do a lot with public defender offices and, you know, we help plan and fund most of the new public defender offices too. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah. And you already just kind of outlined a little bit about what you do with non-public defender counties. You know, you can help them with their uh, appointment rates, maybe with some funding issues with, um, uh, you know, the, the just general representation, looking at the rep, the rates of other attorneys or, or how many cases those other attorneys or attorneys in that County are getting these appointed cases, et cetera. So, uh, kind of a, kind of a all encompassing office. 
We we do a lot for I mean pretty small staff. We we keep pretty yeah. busy. <laughs> yeah, I know that the few few things where I bump into or work uh you know in in coordination with TIDC the the staff there seem just as busy as all the attorneys that I work with and you know bump along with. Um I, I think that if you were in uh the defense world and take your job seriously, whether it's TIDC, public defender's office, uh, private attorney, yeah. receiving appointments, you're always in the hustle and it's not necessarily for the buck. Right. It is yeah. because right. you've got people in custody that may be able to get out, that may have something real legitimate, that may have, um, if nothing else, they're terrified. You know, going back to that $180 you know, somebody, some people get a DWI and they kind of know enough to, you know, they're like, well, you know, okay. And yeah, I was drunk and, you know, I know that I'm going to, you know, have this, that, and the other, and they kind of know already. And they're, they're a little bit not worried about it, but you have the wrong person, a speeding ticket's an incredible deal. So a DWI, it, it's going to take an hour to talk them down off the ledge that their life isn't ruined. Right. right and right. that is part of the job of the attorney is to, right. Yeah, take that time. Take that time yeah. to, to help them know their life isn't over and that, yes, a DWI sucks and you shouldn't drink and drive, but let's talk about that you will move forward and get through this. Right. And, and those things, it just takes time. Good attorneys yeah. are going to spend that time with them. And, and Andrew and I discuss, you know, talk about like being a criminal defense attorney does allow you to have a pretty decent standard of living, right? There, I mean, we do know attorneys who are struggling, but for the most part, we do all right. And, and, uh, you know, we both take a healthy amount of court appointments, um, for about 80%. Right. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and, um, and you know, so much, a lot of time is just not even billed to, to courts because, you know, we're not civil attorneys. We don't do billable hours. We keep track of our time, but you know, a client calls us for 15 minutes, probably not going to bill the court. Yeah. You know, so we do, we do a lot of work and I know a lot of attorneys do a lot of work that just, kind of goes unbilled, but still right. 180 bucks for a misdemeanor seems a little yeah. extreme to me. Yeah. I mean, that's not watching a video. I mean, like you wouldn't be, you, 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 you can't be, read, you cannot read a DWI report and watch the video, the dash cam and or body cam for 180 bucks for 180 bucks. Right. And then go in right. and do all the paperwork for the plea and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. That, that doesn't count actually talking to the client. I mean, it's, it's 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 not easy to sit here and listen to you say like there's attorneys who are saying I'm not doing the work that needs to be done on these cases because of the money, but it's kind of hard to be mad at them, you know? Right. I, you know, I, yeah, I feel really torn about it. I, I think you're spot on because on the one hand, there's part of me that, that kind of wants to scream out that this is your ethical duty, right? right I mean, when exactly. you take a case the sixth amendment doesn't care about whether, whether this re is retained or not, you know, your ethical duty doesn't change, but, you know, d despite maybe popular, popular opinion that uh, attorneys are also human beings and, you know, we, we, we respond to economic incentives and, and we've set up bad systems in a lot of places. And I mean, y'all, y'all's point about the, you know, the misdemeanor cases and talking people down off the ledge and all that. Yeah. And filing motions and just doing the plea paperwork and, I think it's spot on. There, there, there was a great publication put out by the National Association for Criminal Defense Lawyers, NACDL, about maybe eight years ago or something like that, um, called Minor Crimes, Massive Waste. 
And gosh, this report was just head spinning for me that when you read, which it sounds funny to say in the better report, but like it's, when I read this, you know, they, they, they calculated how much time in some, some areas in the United States, how much time um, attorneys would be able to spend on the case, given kind of high caseloads for misdemeanors. And there were some areas where, you know, attorneys spent less than seven minutes per case. Oh my gosh. Is, I don't know how that's even possible. I mean, I don't know. I, what does that even look like? I can't imagine. But you think about like, the, you know, not only the stuff you all pointed out, but like a misdemeanor case, it, I think especially, you know, I, I worked on misdemeanor, I, a few misdemeanors. I worked on murder cases and a lot of stuff in between. And I think so many attorneys are, you know, you think of felonies as these big cases and you work on these massive, you know, homicides, sex assault, guns, drugs, whatever it is. And you go back to a misdemeanor case and it seems piddly. But then you think about, you know, I think about like my kids. And if, I, if my kid got picked up on a misdemeanor and the effect that would have on, on her life, and, and I don't know about y'all, but like I've got one kid who I can't imagine ever getting picked up on a misdemeanor. And I've got another kid yeah. who I think there's a good chance she may get picked up on a misdemeanor <laughs> at some point. She's only four right now, but at some point it's going to happen. Yeah, you can <laughs> see it in that four-year-old. You're like, oh, girl. <laughs> uh, oh, man. I, 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 know, I know it's coming. I know it's coming. But, um, you know, but you think about like a loved one and what a misdemeanor conviction means to them. Or you yeah. think about, you know, I mean, misdemeanors, again, they sound piddly, but you think about the collateral consequences like – you, know, you get one that's that's considered a crime of moral turpitude, and you think about the immigration consequences or the housing yeah. consequences, or you know, just having the record. And, and if you get a future uh, conviction, I mean, just you know, they 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 on paper tend tend to be tiny, but man, they can have big effects on people's lives. Yeah. So so what? And this is you do not have to answer this uh, fully, but right. you know, looking at what you see across our state, what is it that we're lacking? in indigent defense, kind of, kind of one or two things that you're like, this is really crucial. Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, TIDC has been around about 20 years. And I think if you look at, there was a the report that helped kind of spur the creation of, of TIDC was by a guy, a guy named Bob, uh, Bob Spangenberg. And if you look back at the report, a lot of stuff that he found um, still exists in some way, right? I mean, we've solved, we've improved a lot, but, but a lot of the core problems still exist. And I think the, the way I boil down that report, when I think about it, I think one is just data, right? Like pre-TIDC, there was no person in Texas, there was no person on the planet who could have told you what Texas indigent defense looks like. Um, they couldn't have told you what the appointment rate was in Shackleford County. They couldn't have yeah. told you what, you know, how much is spent in Scurry County every year. I mean, we just, we had no idea. So we've got, you know, we've, we made some, you know, kind of headway on the, the data stuff. It's still, we, we, there's still room for improvement, right? I mean, we've got like kind of system level data. We don't really have case level data. Um, you know, the, the data reporting, you know, a lot of it's self-reported and most of it's pretty decent at this point because we've been doing it for a lot of years, but so I think there's there's more work to be done there. I think that's thing number one. Thing yeah. number two. Oh, go, go, go ahead. No, go ahead. Number two. Well, num number two, I would say, is kind of what we were talking about, the access problem, right? That, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, there, we, need to, we need to study this more and make sure that people aren't getting attorneys where they don't deserve it. But, you know, we've got 50 counties in Texas where the appointment rate for misdemeanors is less than 10%. 
Um, and, and where people are just doing, you know, they're just talking straight up to the prosecutor and they're pleading out and that's it. And again, I don't, you know, what we're finding, I mean, that sounds awful and it is awful, but you know, we're monitoring all these counties and when we go out there, it's, it's not like some judge or some magistrate twisting their evil mustache and plotting against defendants. That's not it. I mean, it's, they're doing the same thing that, that the judge or the magistrate before them did. And a lot of times they're, they're trying to, you know, watch county coffers and make sure that they're not wasting taxpayer dollars. So they're being a little yeah. bit protective of that. And, and sometimes it's that they just don't have attorneys in the county. And they don't know how to get past that. So I think that access problem is thing number two that, you know, we've got to, and, and it's not as big of a problem in the urban areas. You know, we, we've got good stats on this. The urban areas, people are generally getting counseled. There are exceptions, but they're very few. These rural areas are really struggling with this because they have a low tax base and they don't have a lot of attorneys. Right. And I, I think the last thing is just, so data would be one, access is two. I think quality of representation is three. You know, we have... You know, like I said, I, I was the kind of the public defense guy at the American Bar Association before I came down to Texas. And I've, I, I've talked to public defenders and private attorneys in all 50 states. We have some of the best attorneys in the nation in Texas. You know, you don't get many like Jerry Morris's, right? Cynthia Orr's. I mean, we, we have some amazing right. attorneys in this state yeah. who have a national reputation. We also have some attorneys that are not not so great, right? And 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 you can be not so great for all kinds of reasons, right? I mean, you know, it could be a lack of training, it could be you have too many cases, it could be that you have the wrong economic incentives, it could be that, that you don't really have client-centered values. Um, but that that quality issue is a, a big one that that looms large. I know those are huge like umbrella categories. I'm giving you data and access and quality, but that that those are the big things I'm. Like. Yeah. And I think the, um, you know, I was kind of thinking or, or trying to, um, think about like, well, how could, how could our listeners, you know, kind of help to raise the bar on the, uh, uh, on with indigent defense in the state of Texas. And I think it's really that last prong is just quality. We can, yeah. we can, you know, um, instill client centered values in our own practices individually and that, that, you know, alone would be like, okay, even though I know I'm getting paid 180 bucks on this misdemeanor, these things have to be accomplished on every single case right? Um, before we can plea it out. Well, the other, the other thing is, um, uh, part of that, that is, uh, this is not Lake Wobegon, right? Right, right. Not all of our children are above average, That's but, right. <laughs> but we can raise the average. Totally right. 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 That, that, that is really kind of the question we can hopefully raise the average so that, so that even the one who is a little behind is better than they were a year ago. For sure. Right? Yeah. All right. Well, now I'm a little depressed. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I, I feel, I feel inspired. I mean, you know, I, I love that there's, you know, we now have a commission. I know TIDC has been around for a while, but somebody that's actually like looking into these issues uh, and into these problems. So, uh, yeah, I've, I've loved hearing Jeff and, and his stories, uh, you know, in, in today's episode. Yeah, it's good. It's good. So, Jeff, we, we told you we ask a few fun questions, and this one ought to be interesting. First of all, what did you play or what did you do when you played in the band? <laughs> uh, gosh, let's see. Um, I started playing in bands when I was 13, and I played guitar, bass, drums, um, 
mostly guitar. I, I sang very poorly a few times. Huh. Um, uh, I am I, I am kind of a, a nightmare of a neighbor because I'm an amateur accordion player. Accordion. Oh, that's awesome. Ooh. All right. Okay. So, so knowing all that, what is, what is your favorite band or musical artist? If you can cut maybe a genre, if you can't get it completely to one. Oh, that's tough. Um, love old country. And I love even before, well, before I moved to Texas, I mean, I've, I've always been a big Towns Van Zandt fan. Nice. Um, he, he's way up there for me. I, I grew up kind of like in, in high school and college, I listened to a lot of like punk rock kind of stuff. And so I, I like like Fugazi and that kind of stuff too. Yeah. But um, uh, yeah, Towns Van Zandt's way, way up there for me. All right. Uh, before we move on to the next one, do you have any of your own music that's on like Spotify or anything? Oh gosh, I hope not. Uh, <laughs> no. I I don't think so. I no, you know, there's a guy. I don't know if you all know Abner Burnett. He used to be kind of a chief public defender for Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid. He and I got together. He plays guitar, and I I played accordion, and we've gotten together at like Schultz Beer Garden uh, once or twice, and and played. But uh, no, I don't think there. I'm hoping there aren't too many recordings out there. No. <laughs> Good. All right. Well, well about- if you, if if you need a bass player, let me know. Yeah, hey, yeah. All right. Decker here. He's quite the singer as well. Yeah. Anyway, anyways, uh, what about uh, <laughs> like your favorite uh, book or one that you're like reading now that you just recommend to people? You know, I'm I'm reading a book now that, and I, I had to bring it over here with me because I knew I'd forget the title. But my my wife bought me a book um, called The Great Dissenter. Uh, that's about John Marshall Harlan, one of the U.S. Supreme Court justices in the, the late 1800s, kind of the re- Reconstruction period. And uh, man, it's it it's pretty wild. I'm about halfway through it, and you know, this was a justice who was just kind of a lone dissenter in case after case after case after case, and, and especially in like civil rights cases and things like that. You know, I mean, you think about right after the Civil War and all the dynamics with you know everything that was going on. And, you know, he was this voice in the wilderness and uh, it was very celebrated by, you know, kind of black communities at the time. There was actually a John Marshall Harlan cigar <laughs> that people bought at the time. So and, and, and he was kind of a, a hero to a lot of people. But uh, what what's really cool is that all these dissents that he wrote in the 1800s were really used almost a century later, like during the, the Warren Court and even, you know, look, looking to like the Rehnquist Court. Um, a lot of these dissents were later on used as kind of a basis for majority decisions. So it's kind of cool thinking like, you know, the improving indigent defense, and I can give you a whole laundry list of things that we've improved. I mean, the funding in Texas is way better. Appointment rates are way better than they're not where they need to be. Quality is way better than it used to be in general. I mean, we're, we are making progress, but remembering that we're kind of like we're, we're cathedral builders, right? I mean, like, you know, yeah. the, the, you're building something, you may not see the end of it but you will make some progress and, and people may be able to use the work that you're doing now in ways that you'll never imagine. And that that's, it's kind of a cool thought. I yeah, like I that. Love that. Yeah. I like that. All right. Last thing, best piece of advice you've gotten. It could be personal or professional. Oh man. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I the, the one piece of advice is I, I was thinking about the movie, the jerk, and I'm not, I, I don't think it's advice I can repeat from that, from that movie, but you can, there, there's, <laughs> there's this, this is a safe place, man. You can say, Oh, okay, good, good. We, we've had Jerry Goldstein on here with some pretty colorful pieces of advice. So. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll leave it with it. What I, what I tell my, my oldest daughter when I drop her off at school every day is be honest, 
be kind and have some fun. And, and I think if you can do those three things, you're just honest, you're kind, and you, you genuinely try, try to have fun with what you're doing. Uh, I think, you know, that's good for work. It's good for life. Um, so yeah, I, I I'll, I'll leave it at solid. that. Pretty solid. Yeah. Great advice. So obviously I think Jeff, if people need to find you, they just reach out to TIDC, um, and they can find you there. They can contact you there. Correct. Absolutely. And I, I encourage people to reach out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we will we will link to uh, to the website on our show notes. Yeah, yeah. So once again, everybody, this has been an episode of Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. Uh, just this week, we sent a shout out to our favorite prosecutor, the Lair Bear, um, <laughs> on Twitter. Uh, see, these are things you don't know if you don't follow us on Twitter. Follow, follow we us have on Twitter, nine. For sure. I've saw, we have nine followers now. Well, on we have Twitter. we have much more uh, weekly listeners than nine. So I that know. number I, needs just, to go just up. Just our Twitter sure. is is sad. Well, big thanks to Jeff Burkhart once again with TIDC for stopping by and sharing some knowledge with us. Uh, it's a great episode for for me personally. Yes, thank I, you, I've Jeff. Learned a lot. Thank you all for having me. This is fun. All right. 